This podcast is brought to you by Retro Instruments, makers of the Stay Level, Power Strip, and 176 Limiting Amp. Retro Instruments, vintage design for modern recording. Learn more at RetroInstruments.com. Hey, it's Larry Crane. Welcome to the Tape Op Podcast. Ontario, Canada's electronic pop duo, Junior Boys, formed in 1999 and have been making fantastic albums since 2004. Their new release, Waiting Game, is what principal songwriter, synth wizard, and singer Jeremy Greenspan describes as a quiet record. It is the perfect companion for a drive, walk, or simply sitting on the couch with headphones and immersing yourself in the band's electronic landscapes. Jeff Sanfield caught up with Jeremy to discuss. Enjoy. Good morning. Yeah, morning to you. Where are you these days? I'm in my studio in Hamilton, Ontario. Oh, nice. It looks like uh, a good looks like a good spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, so I I do want to talk about the the new Junior Boys record, but I you know I was doing a little homework on you, and I mean you've been at this since '99, I guess was the first record that came out. Is that true? No, we. We, I mean, the band sort of formed in 99. I think the first EP was probably a couple years later. In fact, I think uh, this year is our 20th anniversary since we released something. So 2003 was probably our first proper EP. Right. And the first album was uh, maybe that, no, 2004. Long time anyway. Yeah, for sure. I mean, so, you know... How did you first start getting into interested in recording? And I was curious for somebody that's had such a long uh, career, especially in this genre, you know, what was your first rig like that you were working on? And, and then, you know, how has that uh, evolved and, and how are you working now? I want to kind of just understand how you made your first record and then we'll talk about how you made this brand new record. I know there's a lot in between, but yeah, know. sure. I mean, I first, I was, uh, I was one of those kids who was into music and, um, as, a I, when I was really young, I got a, uh, gifted to me by my cousins was a, uh, a four track cassette, four track recorder. And so I played around with that when I was a, really a, a kid, you know, 13 years old and, uh, I had a music teacher who had a recording studio and, and I went to his recording studio and, tr- and he had samplers and stuff like that. And that was kind of fun. Um, and then I, I moved to England when I was about 16 or 17 and I actually got a job at a recording studio in the UK. I was one of those, uh, I was one of those kids that kind of just like looked 30 when I was like 17 <laughs> You know, so I was able to kind of like lie my way into a job at a recording studio as a kind of, you know, um, engineer for hire kind of thing, faking my way through and had a job. 
um, where we did like, I worked basically doing like, you know, demo deals. Like a, a group would come in off the street and you like record three songs for them in eight hours and have a little cassette at the end of it. And so I did that. That was my first studio job. That was probably in like 1996, something like that, 97, something like that. Wow. Um, and then when I got back, I, I was really interested in dance music and that's where my heart was. And so, uh, as a teenager and like in my early twenties and stuff like that, I was pretty dedicated to figuring out how to be a dance music producer and recording dance music. And, and it wasn't until a little bit later that I sort of even entertain the idea of trying to do like something more like pop music, which really is what Junior Boys was, because it involved recording vocals and having sort of more or less song structures that had, you know, verses and choruses and all of that kind of stuff. But that was that was a little bit after my sort of initial kind of tenure of trying to be a dance music producer. And in terms of qu equipment, like I had, I mean... I had a um, I had access to an Ensonic sampler um, at my house. I had a an Atari computer, a Korg M1. Uh, those were my first pieces of gear that I remember having. And then I had you know I liked I played guitar and I had guitar effects and stuff like that. But it really wasn't until I got a computer that I really came into my own in terms of trying to become a real music producer. My first computer, the computer I recorded my first EPs on was a Dell computer that I think had, you know, four gigs of memory or something. And that was like the best possible computer. <laughs> right. You know, so it was like that kind of thing. Obviously, electronic music had been recorded on things other than computers in the past but i i think that you know now it's just sort of ubiquitous i mean everybody's recording on a computer so i was curious if you were actually recording onto a four track at some point trying you know having cutting your teeth on on uh you know with some of that technology and, and the process the reason i ask is that the, the process is so inherently different you know i was having a conversation yesterday with a friend of mine just about just about the process and how different it is to sort of make music with different, you know, capture formats. I mean, it's, it's, it's unbelievable thinking about what is possible now in terms of trying to imagine at that time what one could do now. I mean, uh, my first studio job, I remember the studio had just gotten rid of their tape and so they had moved to ADAT so the first studio job I ever had was using ADAT so I never really was part of a tape thing right um, um, because that was you know that was that era when everybody was moving to hard disk recording or whatever and um, and in terms of like yeah the computers at the you know I mean I when I started producing it was really just at the time where you could just about do it you know and so a lot of my <laughs> A lot of our formative stuff was like involved, you know, like I remember sitting at a studio and having to turn the power on and off all the time because the computer just kept on crashing or trying to render out tracks right. and things like that. Just things that are not things that happen now. And, um, but, you know, it was sort of on the cusp 
And, um, uh, but I always kind of leaned towards a kind of more analog setup that was always, uh, that always got my sort of creative juices flowing more. And so luckily when I started, it was relatively inexpensive to get hardware. Um, so I was able to do like all of our records, for example, were always mixed on consoles, um, which was different than what a lot of electronic music people certainly now do. But even at the time, it was, you know, uh, it was a little bit less of that, even though a lot of my heroes in dance music were all very much kind of people who used boxes and, you know, um, a lot of people who used a lot of out, outboard equipment. Yeah, I mean, now you don't even need to have, you don't ever, you don't need to even plug anything into your computer and you can make a electronic music record, right? Absolutely, yeah. You know, you don't even have to have a USB mic. You don't have to have, I mean, everything can be a sample pack, et cetera. So, um, you know, it, it has evolved to a place that's, you know, it's pretty different. I mean, I, and I think again, it's like if you have had some sort of, you know, experience with creating something that's literally in your physical space that you're in and then putting that onto a fixed medium, it's way different. I think, I mean, if my, if I was 20 years younger than I am, I think my methodology would be completely different because I think I would out of necessity be using a lot more uh, sort of internal software things or tools in order to make music. And it's just I sort of lucked out in the sense that um, I collected a lot of analog, or not analog, I should say, but outboard equipment when I was younger. Um, and I sort of developed a sort of um, a method or a, a type of whatever production practice or whatever that uses things that I now wouldn't choose just based on prohibitive cost, you know? Sure. And you've been working with Matt, who is your kind of partner and engineer for, for quite a while now. I mean, oh, yeah, he, since we were teenagers. Yeah. yeah. What do you think that is about that relationship that's endured? It's a funny relationship because we don't see each other that regularly and um because he lives in europe he lives in italy now and um uh even though we grew up together we spent a lot of time together as young people um but we don't see each other very often anymore um but one thing and, and our lives are very divergent we don't you know it's just we just that's just how life is but we've never had any kind of disagreement uh when it came to music we always seem to be completely simpatico um in terms of you know, where we're at, what we kind of are into, what we want our next th things to be about. And I I'm a generally sort of collaborative person when it comes to music. I just generally feel like anything I would do with another person, I usually think will be, will benefit from me doing something with another person than if I were to go it alone. And that's a little strange because a lot of junior boys is just me because um, Matt lives abroad and we don't really share files. He comes and we work together. And so on the last couple records, it's been about, about 50, 
50% of it is collaborative and then the other 50% is usually just me. But that's not um, because I want it that way necessarily. It's just the way that it's just come about in terms of what we can make happen and stuff like that. Yeah, so um, t- so walk me through that a little bit. I mean, are you making sure. uh, starting the seeds of the tracks and then he kind of yeah, parachutes ex- in and says... No, it's usually the opposite. It's usually so he would show up and we would like effectively just jam like basically just start some ideas and so much of what i do musically is so technologically driven in the sense that there's an enthusiasm for technology or enthusiasm for some piece of gear so it's like okay well let's make a patch using this or let's try this piece out or let's do something that i saw you know and so it's just trying something out and then you know so let's say matt is here for like a month we do like every day for a month of just like jamming out ideas and then he goes away and then I have all this material and then it's usually like, okay, now I got to turn these ideas into songs. And that's typically what ends up happening. And, um, and that's just the way we work with other collaborator collaborators. Sometimes it's a little bit different, but very typically I would say I end up working alone, but in collaboration, you know, like it's sort of a weird kind of thing. Like, um, uh, collaboration's a really weird thing actually musically because it and particularly in electronic music where it's like it's very hard to articulate because it's not like a, an ensemble or a band or something like that where it's like okay this guy is involved in doing the drums and she does this and he does that and you know what i mean it's like it's very it's not regimented in that in these kind of um particular roles so it's not codified like a band is. Mm-hmm. And so it ends up being like, oh, okay, well, it's hard to say where, who did what is what I'm kind of trying to say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned that you don't ever disagree. I mean, and I can see the value in that in terms of the, the preservation of a relationship. But um, I guess I would, the first thing I immediately thought of, and it's not really a negative thing, but like, how do you push each other in a way to continue to evolve if there's just constant agreement? And I think that like there obviously can and and is both of those, those two elements existing in the relationship. But um, I know personally when, when, you know, if I'm collaborating and, and uh, you know, have some unique collaboration um, partners, even if we're not in a, you know, a disagreement or a fight, sometimes comments will be, yeah, I I wonder if that could be X or this could be Y, you know? I mean, I think that we figured out a way to communicate that doesn't like ruffle feathers, but it also sort of pushes me to a place where I, you know, I have to think about something and whether or not I agree or not, maybe it sparks a, a, a path for me to kind of push down and create something that might be even better. So I was just curious if that's happening with you guys or you're just, it's all, you know. No, not, not really. I mean, I, th- I understand how that can be. I mean, I think there's a lot of musical collaborations where it's like, this person comes from this perspective and this other person comes from this other perspective and they meet somewhere in the middle and create something new out of it. I, I'm, sh- I, I know that those collaborations exist. Um, with Matt and I, we've been musically 
together our whole it's you know what I mean? it's not yeah, like yeah. i could say oh he comes from here like we come from exactly the same spot we grew up a block apart from each other we had all of the same foundational musical kind of experiences but what we what is remarkable about it is that the band itself tends to kind of deviate or change from what it used to be and there's neither one of us want to hold on to what some previous notion of what the the group was and um wants to uh you know and doesn't want to go down a particularly it just we just happen to we just happen to have the same notion as to like oh this record should be way more um for example in the in the case of the latest one more quiet you know that was just that was just something that happened because we both sort of knew that that's what we, what we wanted to do but i definitely have other collaborations where you know there are slightly more divergent in taste but you know um i'm also reasonably reasonably agreeable <laughs> oh, it's, it's always good it's always yeah. good to be reasonably agreeable <laughs> yeah um let's talk about some of the the tracks on this record i mean i have a few favorites um Specifically, uh, I really like Night Walk, which I just mentioned. Uh, can you walk me through a little bit of bit about that tune? Sure. I mean, I definitely wanted to make a record where people felt as though they had to sort of enter into it. And like, um, you know, I've sometimes described it to my friends as like, I want people to like lean into the record a little bit, um, you know. And uh, that one, again, that one's like, that song, Night Walk, that's very typical of that's a, a a song that it was collaborative with Matt and that's like very typical where it was like I had a specific oscillator that's like a pretty unusual one and Matt was really jazzed about using it and so we like he built this little bass sequence and then I sort of had this kind of idea and it's like something that I've been like continuously exploring and like kind of want to like lean into further when I going forward of like playing with like really typical sort of like soul blues kind of forms, like, like trying to make a kind of almost like a Marvin Gaye song, but, um, just out of just vibe basically, you know, like just out of like very sort of, you know, kind of almost, uh, almost ambient noise, you know? And, um, so the changes in that song, I mean, I, they're not, it's not specifically like a 12 bar blues, but it, it, it has a kind of, there's a kind of blues formula to that song and a kind of like in a kind of sort of soul vein. And that was what I was sort of going for. And, and, um, it was one of the earlier songs there was a couple songs that were made early on in the making of the record, that one, and then the first song, which really established like the kind of atmosphere. And I was like, okay, well, I want the record to be about this, you know, like, and that was a difficult call in a way. I, I, um, I have a, a very close friend in music, Dan Snaith, who has the band Caribou mm-hmm. and, uh, he's a very close friend and, and, um, and he's always very, uh, involved in terms of like giving me advice on records. And I had sent him a bunch of material 
some of it poppier than the stuff that was on the record and then some of these like what you were saying these more sort of vibey tracks and i was like well what do you think this record about this these this material and he was very like he was very instructive in terms of being like just lean into that stuff more because it's clearly where your heart is or something you know and don't worry about the fact that it's like in some ways not um part of the zeitgeist or it's not it's not very commercially viable music let's say um but uh, that was really important for me because it made me feel like this thing that i felt like i was exploring which in some ways was a little bit different than what junior boys has been in the past um was something really worthwhile uh, and so those, like that track, Nightwalk, that was, that was like an early song that kind of set the tone of the whole record. I always sort of look at it as a record, as a patchwork of and a quilt of sorts. You know, you, I, I always feel like a song needs a partner, at least one other partner that's not the complete oddball in terms of making up a whole work. I still like making records. Obviously, this is a record as a whole, meaning a, a, a collection, you know, not singles. Hearing you say that, that Nightwalk was one of the earlier ones that set the tone. I mean, I think that that's an important it's an important note for people to understand sort of inside making a record, you know? So where, where do you, where do you go? Right? Like, how, yeah, you, I mean, you, I had this, I had this very strong feeling, which was, um, about making a quiet record and a quiet record to me that reflected, um, something very different than saying, Oh, I wanted to make an ambient record. Cause that was not what I wanted to do. I wanted a quiet record that reflected kind of like, my own interest in, in, I guess what I was talking about before, that idea of leaning into a record or uh, inhabiting a record or something like that. The, the thing I sometimes liken it to is like, you know, sometimes if you're watching an old movie, like I'm a, I'm a fan of old movies. That's, I tend to like, um, you know, I tend to not ever watch anything that's like beyond 1982 or something like that, you know? And, uh, and you know, imagine you're watching an old black and white film on TV and then suddenly a loud commercial comes on and you're just like, just completely, it just completely obliterates the whole space that you were in. Right. That That is sort of how I wanted the record to feel like, like you're in a kind of spell. And you can only achieve that, in my opinion, if you sort of take the 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 sort of, the volume down a bit so that like you, the person has to kind of has to enter into the record, be invited into the record and enter into a kind of spell of the record. And, um, 
And so, yeah, that, that was, that was the idea, first of all, in terms of it thematically, but it was also like technologically, it was a bit of a, you know, it presented certain challenges, especially having to do with, um, how loud modern music tends to be. And, uh, and then, uh, just also just sort of, um, knowing that it required of a listener, um, like some degree of engagement that, um, <laughs> that like maybe they don't necessarily have, to, I don't know, have the inclination to do. So, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's sure. you know, you're sort of, you're sort of asking something of your listener and that's can be a scary thing or a, a challenging thing. I've always found like super loud, you know, massively limited mastering to be a barrier to enter into the music. And I've always found myself things that are a little more open sounding, whether it's, it doesn't matter of the genre, whether it's rock music or, you know, electronic music or whatever. But when it's just a little less compressed and in your face that it does invite you in and, and it allows for a little more participation as a listener. It, for sure. And then for me, because I was like, both making the music and dealing with the mixing and of the music, it presents certain challenges because, you know, you sort of, for me, I kind of felt like, well, um, a lot of mix engineers will now say things like, you know, I want to make a mix that sounds great on speakers, but also sounds really good on your laptop or on your phone. And um, I sort of was saying to myself that this, this is not going to sound good on a laptop. <laughs> like, I don't know how to make this sound good on a laptop. And then at a certain point, I was like, you know what? I don't care. I don't want, I don't care if this sounds good on a laptop because, because I realize I don't have the capacity to make this sound good on a laptop and sound good on speakers. I just, I, I even question whether or not anyone can do that. But, um, I th think you sometimes have to kind of make a choice one or the other, you know, because if you listen to certain, uh, old, beautifully mixed records, um, they don't punch out really well on a laptop. And then sometimes if you listen to a, a record that's mixed now that sounds really good on a phone, it, it's just, it's, it's too much. It's too yeah. intense to deal with on speakers. So, um, so on some level, I kind of like let go of this idea that I could, I had to do that. And then once you're saying that, then you're like committing yourself to the idea that like, Oh, well, my master's going to be quieter than everybody else's. And then that has implications, right? Because people perceive quieter music, like literally quieter music, sometimes in an unfavorable way. And so um, that that's a challenge. And so was that a conversation you had with uh, your mastering engineer? Yeah, absolutely. You... Absolutely. So I have, a, I have a terrific mastering engineer, Bob Weston, who... Um, um, who, you know, we went back and forth and we had all kinds of discussions about how to deal with this. Like we had, you know, one idea was we had, you know, well, you know, for the vinyl, it wasn't a big deal, but for the digital master, I was like, well, at one point we were like, why, why don't we have a separate master for a CD than we have for the streaming one? Because you could ease off on a limiter for sure on a CD master because 
it doesn't matter. But then I was like, well, well who buys CDs anyway? And like, you know, <laughs> then it just seemed a little bit weird. Right. Um, but what we managed to do was to get a master that um, really wasn't being limited very much at all. And, uh, and, but was still able to probably make it through the streaming services without being relimited or whatever by their software. So that was the goal that we were trying to do, but it was a technical, a real challenge. It was a real challenge. And, and, um, I don't have like a great prescriptive solution to that challenge. Um, but it is hard to make an album that you want to have a, a really intense amount of dynamic range. Cause that's basically what I was trying to do. I was like trying to say like, you know, look, I, what I really wanted to do was to have a lot of sounds that just like hit the periphery of what someone can hear. And that was like, you know, that was the kind of the ongoing philosophy of the making of the record, this kind of idea of peripheral music, music where there's all kinds of sounds that just are just on the edge of what is audible. And, um, and of course that's, that's hard to do when you're, when you're, um, using, um, modern mixing and mastering techniques. Any particular songs, uh, that really took that idea? Well, the, even Nightwalk, the one you were talking about, there's a, if you listen to that song, there's actually a, a, even though it sounds like a really simple little song, there's actually a, a huge track count on that, uh, song. And there's just a lot of passes. Like, so I would do things where I would record lots and lots of different passes of me doing little tiny ideas. And then I would bury those ideas really, really low into a mix and just have them jump out almost like little, they sound sometimes like little buzzing insects or something like that. These little, these little sort of fizzles that happen every once in a while. And, and the whole album is kind of, has that happening all the time. And um, um, and the idea was to try and, you know, to try and see how deep I could make these mixes seem in terms of like, like a kind of really like a long kind of resolution to them. Mm. And um, uh, I don't know how successful I was, but that was, that was my goal anyway. Yeah headphones for sure <laughs> yeah that's i mean th that's a lot of the kind of music that i really like yeah i like that kind of yeah that kind of thing and so yeah i wanted to make a sort of a headphone record or uh uh you know or in your car record or yeah i mean speakers. and that's that's exactly what you know when i knew we were going to talk and i was kind of started listening to this record a little more intensely um I had it on in the house and I just stopped doing that while I was doing stuff. I felt like I couldn't listen, actually listen to this record, like while I was doing the dishes and stuff, but I, I then took it into my car. I mean, you can certainly have it on, but I couldn't like, okay, I get it, you know? And I put it on in the car for a drive that was about that long. And, and, uh, that's when I started like, okay, yeah, I can sit with this record as a whole. Um, and, that's the uh, that's the challenging part because it's like people have busy lives and it's you know and you can feel really kind of like pretentious saying hey you know you're not going to understand this record unless you 
you know, <laughs> sit down it. with it. And <laughs> unless you sit down with it on proper speakers or something like that, you know, like it just feels it, it feels condescending to say that. But at the same time, that really was how I made the record. And I really did want people to like, um, um, to, I wanted it to be a kind of like a reprieve or a, something like that. You yeah. Know? Um, yeah. Uh, and so that, that, that's the goal of it anyway. So I guess I should say like, if anybody does spend time with a record, uh, I'm grateful. Yeah. Know? I mean, it's the world we live in. I mean, look, most people don't have, you know, amazing yeah. monitors or home rigs. They have earbuds. And if you're yeah. lucky, they have the pro version of the, uh, yeah, sure. Bluetooth headphone and, uh, or earbud and, one of the one of the funny things though about modern technology is that people want really good resolution on a lot of different like you know if you ask somebody like you know would you like to play your video games on a new PlayStation or something like that as opposed to one you could buy 10 years ago people are always quick to be like yeah no this one looks terrific and these games look terrific or similarly on a television or something like yeah. that but people are quite satisfied with having something that sounds kind of worse than they grew up with which is a little disappointing and a little bit strange I mean I think modern Bluetooth speakers are starting to get quite good and um, and, and certainly modern streaming sounds very good um, but, um, but, you know, the irony is, is that you can, you can get, you can go into a pawn shop and get like a pair of speakers for 50 bucks or a hundred bucks that probably sound better than the ones that you buy for 200 that are more convenient or whatever. You know, I think you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And, I, you know, that said, I mean, I I think it's just we're we're in a we're in a time when music is so accessible because of all the streaming services, and people are listening and consuming tons of music. I mean, my mm. kids listen to music constantly, mm. and they have access to everything, so they're constantly exploring. So, in so many ways, there's it's an amazing time for music, um, you know. And uh, at the end of the day, I think that that's that probably wins out, you know, in terms of like the emotional resonance of, of a song or music to the listener, whether or not it's delivered at a 192, you know, uh, Oh, I don't think that matters particularly, uh, yeah. like in terms of like, you know, I'm not, a, uh, I consider myself a kind of like, um, like a budget auto audiophile. <laughs> you yeah, know, yeah. like like there's a point at which it's like diminishing returns to an to an extreme you know um but um but you know sitting down with an album is uh is a unique experience and so um and and it's something i i, I just I'd, I do and I like to do and so that's what I make records for like that's not to say that I don't think my songs can't live on a playlist or something like that but it's it, it, you know that's not that's not the intention of when I make the record yeah how about uh samba on sama I love this this is my favorite track on the whole record I love this oh thank you very much yeah, yeah I, I really enjoyed making that one too um 
that one's kind of interesting. You know, the um, sometimes it reminds me. I don't know if you, do you know the he's very famous trumpet player uh, John Hassel. Of course, who, yeah, yeah. So I, I I listen to a lot of John Hassel, um, in part because um, the city I'm from, Hamilton. Um, you know, the most famous music producer to come out of Hamilton is Daniel Lanois. Sure. And he had his studio about, his studio was a couple blocks away from my studio and they made all these incredible records there, including some of the, um, the ambient records with Brian Eno, but they made these incredible John Hassel records. And, um... Yeah, those records often play with all these, you know, with horns, with harmonizers and stuff like that. That So that song, Samba and Samba, in some ways is a kind of, I don't know if, you know, there's a thin line between homage and ripoff. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, that was kind of the intention to like just play with all these harmonizers. And so my voice is deeply harmonized. And then um, the saxophone has all these harmonizers on them. And... Uh, and I just wanted to create this kind of like, uh, this kind of like post-apocalyptic end of the world kind of feel uh, with that song, like this, because it was inspired by like, um, just like being in an industrial part of the city during a snowstorm. And it was just like, I just saw these like guys who are, just seemed like they were the only human beings left on the planet. And I was like, and this was, of course, during COVID and during the the lockdown and stuff like that. And it just it just set this total tone for me, and uh, I wanted to capture that kind of moods in a, in a in a in a in a song. In fact, I played I with the idea. There was like um, we did these videos for the song where we did some of this like slow television stuff. Where it was like um, there's one video we had of uh, of an old footage of walking around Toronto late at night. And I kind of wanted to do a Samba on Samba one. We, di we did one, ended up doing one of just like going down this sort of, um, this going down this sort of uh, um, path in the autumn. But at one point I was like, I really wanted to do like a, a train during a snowstorm. There's all these videos of trains during snowstorms that I was watching. <laughs> I love that kind of thing, like slow TV. And so I, every time I hear that song, I sort of imagine this like kind of, snowstorm train ride. Um, I got one more question for you before we go. Um, sure. And uh, 
I wanted to hear the story behind the uh, Give Me Something by Yoko Ono remix. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. What a, what a thrill that was. Uh, I, uh, I don't even remember how that came about. Uh, and it was one of those things where, uh, like, it was like in the dance charts and all this kind of stuff. And I remember, you know, like, I remember at the time, um, people were saying that the, the remix had done well. And, um, that was, I mean, I've had a couple of experiences of like, of doing, I, I, I mean, I'm probably, I probably shouldn't say this publicly, but. I'm not a very good remixer. Like I, I just, you know, like it's just like not a skill set that I've ever really had. And I, I always feel pretty disappointed by all of my remixes. Um, but sometimes they're just thrilling to do just for the, the, the fact of doing them, you know? And, uh, I can't even remember what that one sounds like, but I remember it just being, I mean, it's just a weird thing. Just having a, take you know i did i remember i did something like a kind of corporate gig for the rolling stone i did like a rolling stones song that never actually actually even came out but it was like this thing where you have like a acapella of the rolling stones you know it's pretty weird having this <laughs> but yeah it was fun yeah i i always thought it was extremely freeing to to um not have it be your you know, just kind of like do whatever with someone else's track and like. Well, you know, I, I actually started doing that. People have complained a little bit because I augment my voice a lot on this record. And there's something about hearing your voice as someone else's voice that makes you able to make more interesting decisions somehow. <clears throat> and uh, so you almost feel like you're remixing in a little, in a, in a, in a small way. Yeah, but, I think. Uh, that's super cool and i think that that's a really great skill if you're if you're actually mixing or working on your own music to like try to separate and actually approach it as if it were someone else's music like without the attachment well i i think that's if i have one great skill as a producer is that i am i am very quick to be able to throw out my own material like I, yeah. I think it's really important. I think it's really important to not be precious about your ideas and to throw them on the chopping block. I mean, I probably do it too quickly, but, um, but I, I think it's, uh, people can make really, really bad musical decisions if they hold on to ideas that don't warrant being held on to. Yeah. <laughs> Man, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah, and I look forward to uh, sharing this uh, record and uh, our conversation with the uh, tape op world. Yeah, and I'm, beyond. I'm, <laughs> well, I'm I'm uh, honored. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Find us online at tapeop.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next time. <laughs>